Hello, and welcome to What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington, who just happen to be women. Our goal is to bring you the latest news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. And to do it in a way you can understand, even if you don't live and breathe this stuff like we do. Plus, if you listen to the end, we'll have a special surprise. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and we welcome your questions, suggestions, and comments. You can email me at jrovner at kff.org or tweet me. I'm at jrovner. We're taping today at 4 p.m. Thursday, June 29th. As with all news in Washington, things can change fast. And as they say, things might have changed by the time you hear this. So let's get to it. Today we're joined by Margot Sanger-Katz of The New York Times. Hey, Margot. Hey, Julie. Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hey, hey. Joanne. Hey, Julie. And Paige Winfield-Cunningham of The Washington Post. Welcome, Paige. Hi, excited for this. Our first and only topic for today is what the health is up with the Senate health bill. Uh, Margo, for people who haven't been paying attention to every little uh, change in this, can you catch us up on where we are in the process of Republicans trying to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act? Sure. Well, it's actually pretty simple. Um, the House passed a bill uh, about a month ago, and the Senate, was they unveiled their secret bill that the leadership had been developing last week. And then early this week, the Congressional Budget Office gave its assessment of what the effects of that bill would be. And pretty promptly, a lot of senators stood up and said, oh, I'm actually not going to vote for this particular bill. So this week has been characterized by sort of last minute negotiations about whether there are small changes to the bill that could get those senators back on board. And what it looks like right now is that they don't have a deal. So the bill is not dead, but it is sort of on hold. And we're going into the 4th of July weekend with no resolution. And Paige, why don't you tell us a few of the differences between the Senate bill and the bill that passed the House? Well, I think in the mind of Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, he was trying to sort of find this route that would get the moderates and the conservatives on board. So one of the most interesting differences from the House bill is it basically would retain the subsidies under the Affordable Care Act with only some tweaks, uh, rolling them back a little bit. The House bill would have actually pegged them to age. The Senate bill retains the income-based subsidies. And these are subsidies for, to help people pay premiums. Correct, to buy private insurance on the marketplaces. Um, the bill would, for the moderates, it would more slowly phase out Medicaid expansion than the House bill uh, over a number of years. Uh, So that with the subsidies uh, is sort of the concession to the moderates. And then for the conservatives, it would actually enact steeper cuts to Medicaid than the House bill. It would peg the federal spending on Medicaid to a slower growth index starting in 2026. Uh, It would also repeal the individual and employer mandates. That's similar to the House bill. Um, And so I think McConnell was really hoping to find this pathway, but it's, it's turned out that it's even narrower than he thought. And now he's sort of grasping for additional policy changes that that could get everyone on board. So, Joanne, one of the things that we know is that um, the the Senate Majority Leader McConnell has some money to work with, and he's trying to kind of do a deal where he can find fifty votes. Um, your your Politico reporters are running around Capitol Hill. What what's the latest on how the deal making is going? Not as fast as Senator Mitch McConnell would have liked. The uh, low hanging fruit was going to be adding more money to op- for opioids. And that money, we heard last night, it would be $45 billion, and that low-hanging fruit really didn't, it just sort of went splat. Um, they did not, the, the, the moderates who had been asking for that money said, great, but it's not good enough. We're still not on this bill. They're concerned about larger issues, particularly Medicaid. 
So why was it so important to, you know, the Senator McConnell said, we've got to get this bill done. We've got to get it voted on in the Senate before July 4th, even though nobody saw it until last Thursday. Why was it so important to get it done before the 4th of July? I just think speed was really to their benefit in this process for a number of reasons. I mean, one really important one is that all of these senators are going to have to go home over the July 4th weekend and deal with their constituents in some capacity. I mean, I think very few of them are going to have town halls where they have to answer questions and sort of go face to face with activists. But a lot of them are going to march in 4th of July parades. And there is a very engaged activist base of people on the left who are really concerned about this bill and angry. And I think there was a feeling among leadership that you know, if all these people go home and they see angry, sick people holding up signs that they're going to be less enthusiastic about voting for the bill. I also just think generally, you know, the Republicans are passing this bill through a special process that allows them to do it with just 50 votes. So there's not the usual considerations about the filibuster, but they only have 52 seats and they don't all really agree on a lot of really basic stuff about what they want the health care system to look like. And so I think there was a feeling that if everyone had a lot of time to negotiate and go over every detail and everyone got to present their special idea about what they wanted to do about health care, that they were never all going to get on the same page. And so the gamble was, let's write something, let's bring it out, let's have a vote right away, and that that's sort of the best chance to passage. And I actually think some of what we're seeing this week is that everybody has an idea. Um, I saw a tweet from a congressional reporter today that said it felt more like a college seminar uh, talking to these senators than it did like a real negotiation because the ideas are just so all over the place. And now I think it might actually take a while for them to get together on one thing. So Republicans have been saying... uh, This was supposed to be easy, remember? This was supposed to be day one. This was supposed to happen on January 20th or maybe the following Monday. This was not supposed to be crashing up with no resolution by the July 4th weekend. It has been harder than they anticipated. It has been more unpredictable than they anticipated. And the more time goes by, the more it gets picked apart, the more – I mean there was this this sort of wisdom that maybe the Senate bill would have a better CBO score. Well, you know, 23 million versus 22 million, it's not much better. I think that that also made it really hard. This is um, – it's a dramatic change to the health care system in the Senate, there's been more focus on Medicaid. In the House, there was more focus on pre-existing conditions. But the longer it goes, the harder it gets. And Mitch McConnell, I would be surprised if there's a deal by tomorrow. They may have some deals on some – they may take a few steps further. But any step you take before a break can fall apart over a break. And the goal, of course, I think Senator McConnell said when he postponed the vote was to try and negotiate this deal before they leave for the 4th of July so that the Congressional Budget Office has whatever time it needs to to reestimate and then hopefully vote on it right when they get back, sort of a week from Monday. Um, You know, they've been saying for seven years, ever since the Affordable Care Act passed, that we want to repeal and replace Obamacare. It's seven years later. Why didn't they have something ready? (laughs) Because they spent all of their time voting to repeal Obamacare and didn't actually write legislation. Um, You know, you saw an effort in this direction by House Speaker Paul Ryan last year with the plan that they released. But that was really just a framework. And it's very different to roll out a plan versus get everybody uh, on board with it. One of the things I've noticed that's been interesting is, you know, a lot of us wrote earlier this year about the difficulty of doing this through the budget reconciliation process. And there's certain things that can't go into a repeal bill. Um, but it's it's been interesting to see that that actually hasn't been the biggest holdup uh, over the last few weeks. They can't even agree on the things that can go in the bill under the, the budget reconciliation process. And that's been a little bit surprising to me, you know, just that it hasn't been the technical hangups, but the political hangups rather. 
I also think it's been a lot of years of criticizing the status quo. And I think there is plenty about the healthcare system. There's plenty of low-hanging fruit to criticize about the healthcare system. But trying to come up with something better is actually pretty hard. And I think that, you know, the last seven years have not really been an exercise in trying to constructively work together to reach consensus about what that is. And, any you know, once you put forward any idea, then you suddenly become subject to all the attacks because it's very hard to make a change that makes one part of the healthcare system better without making another part a little worse, that helps one group of people without disadvantaging another one. And, you know, they've sort of had the benefit of being able to point to all the people who were disadvantaged by Obamacare and say, isn't this horrible? We're going to fix it. But now, and, you know, I think part of the reason why the CBO report really seemed to torpedo this particular effort, it's really clear that their bill also has winners and losers. And, you know, the losers are going to be hurt by this bill and are going to be upset about it. And they have to contend with that. And and the big underlying problem here is the problem of health care costs. And that's a problem that really nobody knows quite how to solve at this point. Um, and so when you line up Republicans and Democrats, Democrats are always going to be willing to spend more federal money to help make insurance affordable. And so that's why Republicans will always lose on the issue. They can talk and talk about trying to make premiums more affordable and bringing down the cost of health insurance, but actually threading that needle is really, really hard. Also, there's more, you know, I think watching this process, we all knew McConnell didn't have 50 votes, but I think there was sort of this um, incorrect assumption that he was sort of close, that maybe he had 47 and had to get, you know, we all knew he had to thread this needle. He all, we all knew if he went to the moderates, then he'd anger the conservatives. If he went to the conservatives, he'd lose the moderates. But, it, you know, as soon as this thing fell apart this week, we found out there's like a lot of people who had quietly been not liking this bill. He's he's probably in the area. If, there's, if there was a vote, like a free political, you know, do whatever you want vote with no political consequences right now, you know, it'd get like, what, maybe 35 votes? It's he's got a lot of work to do. Normally something this big, you have, you know, presidential leadership and a lot of presidential leadership. When they were doing the Affordable Care Act, President Obama, for better or worse, was out there, you know, beating the bushes. He was doing town meetings. He was, you know, traveling the country. He was meeting with members of Congress. Um, President Trump has been, you know, to be kind, inconsistent in what he seems to want from a health care bill. What what impact is that having on all of this? I think it's the fact that he's not a real conservative is coming out. I mean, you can just see his dismay, sort of the subtext in his tweets and even the things he said directly, that it's mean and that it's cold hearted or whatever the terms was that he used. I don't think he really realized um, what Republicans were talking about when they meant replace the Affordable Care Act. In his mind, you know, he talked about how he doesn't want people to die on the streets and he wants everyone to have insurance coverage. And yet he doesn't really have any idea of how you get there in a way that is not the Affordable Care Act. And so I I think he's been really dismayed as he's seen the framework of what the actual policy looks like. I mean, one thing that I've wondered about, I was not in Washington when the Affordable Care Act passed. And I think you're right to point to the presidential leadership. But I also wonder a little bit about congressional leadership. Like, it is kind of amazing to me watching this process to think that Democrats really almost all of the senators, all the senators uh, in the Democratic caucus and a large majority of the Democrats in the House voted for the Affordable Care Act, which did have some really serious trade-offs and did probably have some features that, you know, people had to hold their nose to vote for. You know, Mitch McConnell is so famously this great tactician and this great deal maker. But I, I'm curious, Julie and, and Joanne, like how much credit we think the, the Democratic leadership should have gotten for, you know, putting together something equally complicated and hard to corral. Back in 2009, 2010. Well, it had taken, you know, decades. And for all the, you know, I, I mean, the fun, one of the fundamental problems with the Affordable Care Act is it was partisan. There were no Republicans that voted for it. The, uh, but the reality was that had been the case for decades and that Obama did get 
the votes he needed to pass it, all Democratic votes. They live with the consequences of that partisan vote, just like the Republicans, if they win, with us, if they get this through, they will live the, with the consequences of a partisan vote. But he had no choice, right? It was a partisan vote or no, no bill. So we're seeing history repeat itself. But, it, you know, Julie and I have been here longer than the other two of you. We've seen history repeat itself a lot, only it just gets uglier every time around. Although I think one big difference between 2009 and now, in 2009, there were a lot of members of Congress who'd been here for a very long time. They had been through the ups and downs of working on health legislation. I mean, people like Henry Waxman, John Dingell, who'd been fighting for, you know, for national health insurance since he came to Congress in the 1950s. Um, so they had seen, they had been through the Medicare Catastrophic Coverage Act, which was passed. It was supposed to help people with Medicare. There was a backlash in some ways about people who didn't actually understand how it worked. It ended up getting repealed. It's sort of the only example of, a, of an entitlement that's been repealed, although it had not yet taken effect. Um, then they lived through the Clinton health care plan, which was its own sort of different kind of meltdown. Um, and then they'd lived through the Balanced Budget Act, which was the one time that Democrats and Republicans came together and did a lot in terms of health care. That's when they created the CHIP program. So they'd seen what had worked and what hadn't. And I think it was really the leadership of those, you know, long-time Democrats who'd, who'd, you know, been here and been through the wars. Um, George uh, George Miller from California was was active in doing this. Um, Nancy Pelosi, obviously, who'd been here. Harry Reid, who was then the majority leader in the Senate. Um, Ted that, and Ted Kennedy, that's right, who helped laid the groundwork for all this. Max Baucus, the Finance Committee chairman. Um, actually, a lot of staff who'd left uh, in the early 2000s came back to the Senate to, to be part of, you know, a historic a health bill. And I think, and, and even so, I mean, it also almost died any number of times. Particularly, it did die. Yeah. It died and came back <laughs> it, to life. Yeah, I mean, it died it was... and was actually resurrected after, you know, the um, uh, Scott Brown was elected to, to fill the late Ted Kennedy's seat and the Democrats lost their 60 vote majority. So, you know, that's why everybody keeps saying, you know, is this bill dead? And, you know, it's like, it's never really dead until it's dead. <laughs> but I and it has to be dead for like it has to be dead for a few days before we're convinced it's dead. I mean, I don't think any of the four of us are willing to say. I mean, I think we can all see it going either way. That it's it's been an incredible. I mean, it is not a it has not been a predictable, easy process. But it surprised Mitch McConnell too. It surprised the senators. They thought they were going. I mean, they went in. We had a, we had a great story sort of taking you in the room this week at Politico where um, they they walked. The senators walked in. I think it was Tuesday. I mean, my days are blurring. Was it Tuesday they pulled it? Was it just two days ago? Um, and they walked in thinking that this is the meeting where Mitch McConnell's going to—it's the big reveal. He's going to tell them how we're going to get this done. And instead, he said, "Hey guys, I don't have the vote. We're not doing it." So not only were you know were, were we surprised to hear that at least on Tuesday, I wouldn't have been as surprised if it was Friday. But the senators themselves were surprised. This has not been a predictable narrative. And talk a little bit. We've seen an awful lot of public opinion polls this week um, showing, I, I think, that the high the high watermark in any of the polls uh, favoring this bill was 30 percent. The low watermark, I think, was 12 percent. Have any of you ever seen, you know, such a major piece of legislation that's opposed by the major industry it would affect and by the public? I think it's a huge political risk for the Republicans, too, if they pass this bill. I was speaking with Molly Ann Brody, who's the top pollster for Kaiser Family Foundation, and they've done this great tracking poll, you know, ever since mid-2009 on the Affordable Care Act. And essentially what they found is that before the bill even passed, public opinion kind of got baked in. And it really didn't budge until just a few months ago. And I think the fact that it moved actually is not really about the Affordable Care Act. It's about this debate. But what she said is that probably this is the approval rating for this bill. You know, if it passes, it will probably everyone is it's going to be hard to get people to move from not liking it to liking it. 
And that seems like a problem for Republicans, especially heading into a 2018 election. I think what's more striking to me, even the polls, because I I think I don't maybe I don't I should trust polls more. But I I feel like most Americans don't really understand what's in the Affordable Care Act and they don't understand what's in the Republican bill either. (laughs) Don't you think that matters anyway? Like people, they make up their mind about how they feel about this thing and who they're going to blame if things go wrong. And it almost doesn't matter what's really in there. Well, there's this funny dynamic because the base, the Republican base still wants Obamacare repealed. They just don't like it. They want it repealed in some way that they get everything they like and nothing they don't like. Like Donald Trump <laughs> promised. Right. But the 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 dynamic is one thing that's interesting is that so the what we've been seeing about the, the polls by the Affordable Care Act for eight years is it's it really is just another way of saying your party affiliation, right? If you're a Democrat, you like the Affordable Care Act. You don't love it, but you like it. If you're a Republican, you hate it. And that that pattern, it's very aligned with your politics because healthcare is so much a reflection. It's become sort of a proxy for how we feel about government. In this bill, there's a strange dynamic where Republicans, they want Obamacare repealed, but Republicans and Democrats both don't like this bill. Republicans and Democrats are both concerned about pre-existing conditions. Republicans and Democrats are both concerned about Medicaid increasingly. That's showing up in the polls. And Republicans and Democrats are both concerned about what healthcare is going to cost them. So what's worse for the Republicans, not fulfilling this promise that they've been making for seven years to repeal and replace the law or doing this bill that pretty much everybody doesn't like? I think it's really striking that they haven't managed to get anybody in the healthcare industry on board with this. I mean, if you look back in 2010, I wasn't around then, but there was buy-in, as I understand it, pretty broadly across the board. You've seen virtually all of the doctors and hospitals come out against this bill, and the insurers are basically staying neutral on it for the most part. A few of the larger insurers have endorsed it, but America's Health Insurance Plans is basically taking a neutral position. And that's really interesting because this law does contain some things they would like. It, It does repeal virtually all of the Affordable Care Act's taxes. And that's something that the industry has pushed for for a long time. But I think they see that really countered by a lot of the Medicaid cuts and the uh, less generous insurance subsidies. And I think that's a real strike against Republicans, too. This reality has led to like one of the funniest parts of this debate, which is that you see Democrats all the time standing up and saying, isn't it horrible how none of the lobbyists endorse this bill? Like there is a, you know, it is true that the healthcare industries were behind the Affordable Care Act and I think their support helped it. Uh, And it is also true that, you know, very few of them have said anything positive about this bill. But I do think it is a really funny, ironic thing that you have Democrats who are so often railing against the power of big money, like just, you know, crowing about how the hospital lobby, the health insurance lobby are not endorsing this bill. One of the lessons, probably the most important lesson that the people who are putting the Affordable Care Act together learned from the failed Clinton effort is that you can't overcome the opposition of the insurance industry and the drug industry and, you know, a lot of the groups that, that banded together to kill that effort. So there were meetings and meetings, months, but well, you know, well, you know, President Obama was still had not even won the the nomination yet. There were these meetings going on with industry groups to try and see, you know, what would you need to buy in so that, I mean, by the time he was inaugurated, there was already a framework of what this bill would look like that Max Baucus had put out. All he had to do was kind of not mess it up. Well, what we've also been seeing, I mean, some of the ideas that are in this, but we didn't see the bill until a few days ago, but these Republican ideas we are familiar with, right? We have had hearings, we've had symbolic votes, we've had markups over the years. Some of the ideas like association health plans have been around for, you know, probably 20, 25 years across state lines. That's actually not in the bill, but as part of the debate, that's been around for years, medical malpractice, um, deregulation, getting rid of essential benefits, um, you know, making, making, having fewer regulations around what insurers have to sell and how they have to sell it. These are not 
We didn't know what was in the bill, but we knew what was in the bill. We didn't know how it was going to be put together. We didn't know all the spending levels. We didn't know the details. We know what the Republicans, you know, wanted to do. You know, the, the secret. You know, we didn't know how McConnell was going to weave it together, and as it turned out, he didn't weave it together. It didn't work. Well, we could go on, but I think we're probably going to stop our main conversation for today. We're going to wrap things up with a segment we're calling Extra Credit. Everyone here is going to recommend a story they read recently that they think everyone else should read too. And don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these pieces on the Kaiser Health News site, khn.org. Paige, let's start with you. What's your extra credit assignment this week? Well, earlier today I was reading a really great analysis piece by my colleague Paul Kane uh, at The Post. And he takes a look at Senators Rob Portman of Ohio and Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania. And these two uh, men are actually very similar. They were elected in the same year. They're both members of the Finance Committee. Uh, they're really pretty close politically. And yet Portman has come to represent in a large way the moderates in this debate. And Toomey has come to represent the conservatives. And McConnell had actually asked them both to kind of negotiate a couple weeks ago uh, early on and kind of talk out their differences. I'd actually been told by Hill aides that they had one meeting, realized that they weren't going to agree and haven't met since. Um, but it's a really interesting story because it looks at, at, at two men, both from states that have expanded Medicaid uh, with similar populations, and yet they've taken vastly different tactics. Um, and, and Toomey is emphasizing that he wants more deregulation in the bill. He wants to make sure that more Affordable Care Act requirements are lifted. Uh, and then Portman has been really concerned about the Medicaid cuts. He wants more funding for opioids. Um, and so I, I just think it's really, really interesting because, you know, these these guys are taking a, a look at pretty similar scenarios politically in their states and, 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 and going very different routes. Joanne? Um, for someone who spends so much time immersed in the politics and minutia of healthcare um, and the Washington aspects of healthcare, I was delighted last night to come across a great piece on NewYorker.com called A Doctor's View of Obamacare and Trump Care from Rural Georgia. It's about um, a clinic in a, in a very poor section of a poor state. Um, Georgia did not expand Medicaid, and because these people are too poor to get into the exchange, um, it's really about people who live in a healthcare crisis day to day. And I want to just read one sentence about this doctor who's in her 60s who's running this clinic. Her name is Karen Kinsel. Kinsel runs Clay County Medical Center, a facility with four exam rooms built out of a former Tasty Freeze. It's a private practice, and she's a full-time volunteer. Wow. Margo. So, um, I've been thinking a lot about what Paige said earlier, which is, you know, part of the reason why we're having so much trouble in this debate is because our healthcare system is too expensive. And, you know, all of us have been so focused on the politics. But Phil Gallowitz at Kaiser Health News had a really great story just uh, talking about one little piece of this. So uh, the title of his piece was Hospitals Ramp Up Hyperbaric Therapy for Diabetics Despite Concerns. And it was basically about the sort of growth industry in hyperbaric treatment for people who have diabetes and have wounds that aren't healing well. And there's almost no evidence that this therapy helps those wounds heal, but Medicare pays a lot of money to clinics that offer this treatment. And so they have just been springing up everywhere, and there's been just enormous growth in these treatments. And, you know, all of us are paying for Medicare to pay for this treatment of dubious benefit. Uh, and he just did such a nice job of sort of talking to everyone, talking to regulators and the and patients and the providers and the companies that are providing these uh, machines that they use to do this treatment. 
Great. Uh, and finally, here's mine, and I promise I won't make a habit of recommending articles in medical journals. But this one goes right to the heart of what the debate is right now. How important is health insurance to people's health? The article's by an all-star group of health researchers, including Harvard surgeon and New Yorker staff writer Atul Gawande. It was in last week's New England Journal of Medicine, and it's called Health Insurance Coverage and Health, What the Recent Research Tells Us. Um, and spoiler, it finds out that there is a lot of evidence that having health insurance improves your health, and not having it can be dangerous to your health. Um, So that's it for today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And you can email me at jrovner at kff.org with suggestions for future shows. Or you can tweet me. I'm at jrovner. Uh, You guys want to offer your Twitter handles? I'm at Sanger Katz. I'm at Joanne Cannon. I'm at PW underscore Cunningham. Great. Thank you very much. We'll be back in your feed soon. In the meantime, be healthy.